Welcome to The Human Perspective with internationally recognized badass disability activist Judy Human. This week, Judy is chatting with Nina G. Nina G is a stuttering comedian, public speaker, and author from the Bay Area. She also is a doctor in psychology, and this is pretty clear as she cleverly and brilliantly weaves disability theory and pride into her comedy through performances with the Comedians with Disabilities Act. Nina G is the author of the children's book, Once Upon Accommodation, a book about learning disabilities, and her book, Stutterer Interrupted, the comedian who almost didn't happen. She also is the producer of the album, Disabled Comedy Only. Judy and Nina chat about everything, from what does Nina do when comedians she knows make fun of disabled people in their act, and maybe how Judy says she could never be a sit-up comedian. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Becca Howell, and Judy Human. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to The Human Perspective. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, get some snacks ready, whatever makes you feel best, and let's meet our guest today. Welcome back to The Human Perspective. Nina G just wiped away her tears. She's been laughing so hard thinking about being on this program today. For those of you who don't know Nina G, she is a comedian. Uh, she is an author. She is another dynamic woman. She has a learning disability and is a stutterer. So, Nina. Yes, Judy. You just did the Cripping the Red Carpet, uh, which was done by Andre Levant, the impact campaign manager in her company. So what did you think about, A, the fact that this was happening, and B, that you were going to be a co-host? I was so excited because and I, and I don't know how this is going to come out, but like I had fantasies of asking shallow questions to people like you to say, what are you wearing? Because with all of the accomplishments that you've had, I want to talk to you about your lipstick, um, which I think that like the shallow questions is that, that is, that is equity, that is access, that is inclusion shallow questions <laughs> so um was it great being together i know i know um Naysun, and uh, i think she's hysterical also what was it like being with her oh it was so great and like and to be joined by like we had probably over 550 people and to celebrate with her and celebrate with the community like this was just amazing and just like you know any excuse I have to dress up in my rent control kitchen I will take and I like I th there are still uh, fe fe feathers being found around the house because I had a bo boa so it was very exciting very fun and um and was so happy to be involved in it you know uh, while that was going on uh, Jimmy Lebrec and Nicole Noonan and uh, Sarah Boulder and uh, Andrea and myself and Stevie and um, Becca and Jamie and of course the lovely dog Goji and 
Goji was completely, you know, regaled with dog outfit. <laughs> so we were on the carpet. I was kind of, I think Andrea too, we weren't sure that we were actually going to get on the carpet because it was the directors and the producer that were originally going to get on the carpet. And then there we were, they asked us to go on the carpet with them. And it was just a wonderful experience. And knowing that Andrea really had thought in advance of putting something together, which could bring people together, I thought was really fantastic. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about you. You have a PsyD, a doctorate in psychology. Why did you decide you wanted to study in that area? You know, I think I, I always wanted to be a teacher, specifically a third grade teacher. And, um, and so um, I did some student teaching when I went to UC Berkeley after I transferred. And it was in a third grade classroom. And I realized that I hated to teach English and I hated to teach math. And I just pictured a class that would feel really good about themselves, but not be able to read or to, or, or to do math. And so I was like, you know what? I think I'm gonna change. What happened was I went to grad school and that's really where I kind of, you know, like there were some barriers that I had when I went to grad school and it brought back a lot of my past discrimination issues when I went to Catholic school. Um, Cause I went to Cal and you know, Cal goes kind of up and down on their access, but it was pretty good. Um, and, um, and so it was just like kind of a calling to work more as an, as an advocate and an activist and to integrate that, that work. And so what was your, um, paper on your final paper, your dissertation. My dissertation was on the so services at my school and putting them online. Cause this was like 1993, 90, no, no, it was 96 when I wrote the proposal. <laughs> and so like the online was new and the internet was new. And so I was able to do something that was pretty easy now, but then it was a thing. So when did you realize that comedy was something A, you enjoyed and B, that you were interested in uh, being able to contribute as a comic? That's a whole, that's a whole thing. Um, I, I like, I was raised around comedy. My, my family loved Steve Martin. And that's when I was like four years old was when he started to get very popular. Uh, and um, my mom and dad did not censor what me and my brother watched. So and also my mom loves comedians like Richard Pryor. So I was always exposed to lots of comedy. Also, I could stay up as long as I wanted to. So I'd come home in fourth, fifth grade and I'd take a nap and then I'd be up watching David Letterman when he was on NBC. So like the good years. Um, so I was so I so I grew to love it and stand up comedy 
Um, I, I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, and we have really like a really rich history of stand-up comedy here. And I'm actually contributing to to a bu book about it. Um, and you know, M M Mort Saul happened here, and Phyllis Diller uh. happened oh, here. Oh, really? Williams happened here. Were they all from the East Coast? Um, Phyllis Diller was from Ohio. Mort Saul, I think, is he Brooklyn? Maybe. Oh, Canada, and then he moved somewhere, and then he moved to Southern California, and then he came here. Robin, he went to high school here, so, and wow. I think he was originally from Michigan, but he stayed here forever and ever and just contributed so much to the community here. So when I got into high school, like the, like all my girlfriends, they all liked like the new kids on the block and stuff like that. I had crushes on stand-up comics. So that was my thing. I was, instead of rock and roll or rap, I was into comedy and when I started like in my preteen teenage years, I wanted to be a comic and I write jokes, look for open mics, but I never got, got, got up on stage since I stutter. I thought that I couldn't be a comic. Then I went to a conference for people who stutter, which really, and that happened when I was the 35. So like there's a 25 year break there. And at the conference, I realized how much space I relinquished up to other people, especially being a woman, especially being a, a, a person with a communication-based disability. Um, and I decided I needed to kind of claim that space in my life. And I came home, broke up with my ex at the, or my now ex, and just kind of started a, a, a brand new life. And during that, I was like, okay, what do I want to do? And about six months after the conference, I got up on stage at an open mic for the first time and did comedy because it was like that dream that had never left. Like it was just, I, I, I never thought it was possible. And then I was like, oh no, like it is. And if I'm going to own my own activism, if I'm going to own my own advocacy, I better believe it for myself as well. Did you uh, do comedy at all in school or with your family or at weddings or did people tell you you were funny? Not necessarily. And, you know, I come from an Italian American family where I am pretty much the only girl. And uh, you, you get that kind of attention sometimes, you know, <laughs> kind of the boys kind of take them, you know, and, and like, you know, I, when I started doing comedy, I, I had some uh, relatives say, oh, my son's so f f funny, he, he should be d d d doing it. Well, then let him do it. <laughs> but I'm up here now and I'm working really hard at it. And, I, and I've been at it now for uh, 11 years. What did your family feel about this? You know, my parents are so supportive of, of so I think 
My parents um, had to fight for me my entire life. I went to Catholic school. I got diagnosed with dyslexia when I was in third grade. That's about the time that I started to stutter. On both sides, they have a disability experience. My dad's hard of hearing, so was his dad, so was my grandfather's mom. My mom's mom had polio. So like they just knew how to fight and knew that that having a disability was a, a normal thing. But also they were just like, as long as you're happy, as long as you wanna do the things that you wanna do, I think they were really glad I got my education first <laughs> so that they didn't have to be concerned about that. Um, you know, if it happened the opposite way, then um, it may have been a different feeling, but they're, but, but they come to shows. They know that I will report what they say on Facebook, like 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 when the octopus film won, my mom said, and I quote, "The whole film is a guy trying to act like the octopus knows who who he is." So that was my mom's take on it, which I thought was hilarious. What is it about comedy that draws you in? You know, I think the comics who I really liked and really enjoyed are people like Richard Pryor, like, 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 like one of his writers, Paul Mooney, who is African-American, and he talks about um, discrimination in history in his act. And like, I know that I have learned a lot from comedy, a lot on di different perspectives that I would not have learned otherwise. And the authenticity that you can bring into comedy to me is something that I don't see as much in other art forms because there there is no blocking it's just you and the audience and the microphone and that's it yeah i was watching some of your material and i love it i'm not good at repeating jokes so I'll mention one that i think i can say accurately how many stutterers does it take to put in a light bulb yes how many oh no 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 it's how many disabled people oh, does sorry. it take in a light bulb and the answer is one to screw it in in five able-bodied people to say, you are such an inspiration. I love that because it's so simple. And I think it really makes such a powerful point. And then you go on to talk about inspiration and what it should be and shouldn't be. And I, I like the authenticity of your comedy. Oh, it's really so available and knowledgeable. I like your comedy because it feels authentic. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit about authenticity. So what does authenticity mean to you? And do you feel that you as an individual have been changing? By that, I mean, when you were 25, what was authenticity to you at that point? And what is it today? And why do you feel authenticity is so important? You know, I think for me, uh, it, it's hard to talk about uh, authenticity without talking about my dyslexia because the dyslexia, it's, it's a language-based learning disability 
that writing and reading is it it is a barrier and writing is so much of how people express themselves and even though i stutter and i'm doing stand up stand up is so much more of a better mode of expression for me because of the dyslexia that it takes me such a hard time to come up with the right words and the right words be being in quotes and it takes me so long to put words on the paper or words on, on the computer and yet i love words but i also hate them too um, and so for me part of going into comedy especially coming from the academic world is like it's really like i i mean my I was raised around swearing. So like for me, saying the F word is really important. When you are nine years old and see Richard Pryor live at the Sunset Strip, it has an impact on you. Um, and, um, and so for me, like it's hard to express myself without saying the F word or whatever that, and it's just to me, a, just a better way to communicate because I'm able to say what I want to say. And, and I think that's also where we can, in the, in the disability studies field, I think we need to look at the mode of expression in very broad ways, that you can do that kind of work academically, you can do that on a TV show, you can do that in comedy. And disability studies deeply impacts me in comedy because I don't necessarily joke about my stutter, although sometimes it does just happen. Um, but I really try to take aim at the barriers and the attitudes that I encounter instead of like, ha, 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 look at the way I talk, ha, kind of thing. How do you um, address comedians who make fun of disabled people and our disabilities? And how do you feel about it? And what have you, what do you do in that regard to try to address it? You know, um, I try to have a surplus of things that I say. And so if a comedian goes on in front of me and they use the R word, I, I've also learned that I can't lecture comics on saying, you know, the R word is very hurtful. It's a word that I've called that myself. You know, don't explain things to comics. You just make fun of them. Um, and so that is where I try to make fun of them when they use words or they use the subjects. And, um, and so that is what I do in the moment. Um, and also I don't, if I produce a show, I don't have people who reflect that kind of ableism. And uh, also, I think I've communicated it a lot with my friends and my friends would will like say, oh, I would have said it this way for ye years ago, but I'm saying it this other way and how they've ch changed their language around that. And also, I think what's really important is we'll oftentimes hear about a famous comic who says this awful ableist thing. And yes, they should be called out, all of that stuff. But when that happens, what I do is I will promote a disabled comic. Because to me, 
those voices, those able-bodied voices, they're going to be out there. What pisses me off, and I don't know if I can say that, but what pisses me off is that, okay, okay, good, um, that there isn't the voice of the disabled world being represented. And so, yeah, okay, I know there's going to be some able-bodied perspectives out there, and that's cool. Um, it's kind of not cool if the disabled perspective is not there, too. And I want to be on stage with the ableist comic <laughs> so that um, they, people get some other kind of, some other kind of perspective. Are you directly or indirectly um, working with other disabled individuals who are interested in comedy? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's um, my friend, my, Michael O'Connell, who has since passed, but he started the Comedians with D D Disabilities Act. And he invited Steve Danner and Eric Neon. Um, and so it was them. And then I was like, you need a disabled wo uh, woman with a non-apparent disability. So they had me. me on. Yes, <laughs> you need me. You need me. Um, and so the other guys are not at, as active since, since the passing of month. Michael, but Michael just gave me this wonderful gift to be able to perform for shows where they want a disabled perspective that like you say this setup and people laugh. They don't like, you don't even have to say the punchline yet and they get it. Um, and so since, since the other comics aren't, aren't as active, I've been working a lot with Mean Dave, who is the illustrator, he actually drew you. Oh, and Mean Dave, when Crip Camp came out, Mean Dave said, uh, Judy is a hottie. That was his exact words. That's what he texted me. Um, so thank you. <laughs> there you go. Thank you, Mean Dave, for that compliment. And then also <laughs> working with Michael Beers, who is a comic out of Montana. So we've been doing a lot of Zoom shows. And Dave is is a is a recovering addict. Besides them, and and, and Mike has a a physical. Disability. Besides them having that stuff, they're also two of the strongest and funniest comics that I know. So um, I've been doing a lot of shows with them, and it's really special to, because we have a really nice relationship, um, and we can tease each other. Like Dave will introduce me and say, "What can I say about this next comic that wouldn't take her longer to say about herself?" <laughs> and so. Which is, you know, he's my friend and he says it out of love. Um, and when it's done like that, it's cool. Um, so for me, those are my favorite shows. Um, and we've brought on a lot of other comics. And in June, we're going to have a disabled comedy festival. So um, look for that. It's through Disability Pride P PA. Pennsylvania. Yes. Oh, that's great. So we'd love to highlight that. I want to talk seriously um, for a couple of minutes about both stuttering and dyslexia. 
Um, when I worked in the Clinton administration in education, uh, one of the pieces of information that I remember reading about was the disproportionate rate of stutterers, drop, kids who had stuttering as their disability dropping out of school. Mm -hmm. And um, that really surprised me. I don't know why it did. I mean, I think, you know, you mentioned that 1% of the pop of adult population are stutterers. And so the number is not that large, but maybe we could talk for a minute about uh, the impact of stuttering on uh, children, young adults and adults. And mm -hmm. if this makes sense, how comedy you as an example of a successful comedian who also has a stutter. Um, are you linking up or more people who are stutterers linking back to you to talk about their experiences um, of discrimination? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think what happens is, well, first of all, there's a really high percentage of people who have learning disabilities and Tourette's and other kinds of neurological stuff in with the stuttering population. Okay. So I think it like complicates that story a little bit more. I think the ones like there are people who have learned to love to write and that they're these awesome writers because they can express themselves in that way. But for the 30 or 40% of people who stutter that have dyslexia, uh, you, 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 you don't get, get that. And I know for me, my personal experience was I acted weird. I, I found that if I was, it, when I was like in the eighth grade, that if I acted weird, I could conceal my stutter that I could use kind of a funny voice or some intonation or something like that. And also I loved these weird pe people like Emo Phillips and Bobcat Goldflate who manipulated their voices. So I had the role models there to be weird. It didn't really help you in school. It didn't really, it didn't facilitate making friends or going on dates or going to the prom. Um, and so you, I, you do things sometimes, at least me, I did things that kind of isolated my, 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 myself more. And it wasn't until I found the stuttering project um, that M Michael Sh Sugarman started. And, and luckily I was in the Bay Area, so it was nearby. Um, that then turned into the net, net National Stuttering Association that really reframed how I thought about stuttering, that I could be open about it. Because before that, I thought the goal was always to be fluent and that wasn't gonna happen. And I think the relationship to dropping out of school is a lot of times I think kids in who received special ed services they spend a lot of time in remediation. Let's 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 do speech. Let's do OT. Let's do PT. Let's do all this stuff, and they get pulled out of PE and they get pulled out of art. And like the one thing that they're invested in throughout the day is the thing that they're getting re remediation for. Um, and I just think that we need to offer an array of things to kids 
so that they can find investment in school. Because once they find that, they will per persevere, hopefully, along with access. Like access is a big, is kind of the big thing. You talk about your parents and the important role that they played in your life just because they were great parents and really like went with the flow, I presume of your brother also. Do your parents spend any time at all with parents who have kids who are stutterers? Um, when I drag them into it, yes. And my mom and dad love to talk about it. Um, and their attitude is always like, well, you know, my, my dad, it, it, it's why dad says, my dad drove me to Walnut Creek to have speech. And that's what I did for my daughter. Like that, like we had a framework that really was combat compatible to have a disabled kid. And I feel very fortunate to have been born to disabled parents, which right. I, we don't talk about that, but we should. Um, <laughs> and so, or at least one disabled parent. Um, and yeah, and they will talk and they will kind of offer a different point of view than I think the one that is oftentimes seen. And, and I've done presentations with them and, and that kind of thing. You talk about examples that people give you of things that you could do to overcome your stuttering. I love the way you put that into your comedy act because I am wondering when people hear how you are reflecting back to them, how, well, I think harmful, hurtful, but in some way funny to you, to me, when people say certain things, um, do you feel that that helps change people's views around disability to listen more to what we're saying? Yeah, and and like I can tell the same story to a class where I'm not a comic, where I'm presenting on stuttering, and people are like oh, oh, and they get like this really sad thing, and and it's like it's almost like it's a virtue signaling thing of like, oh, I feel so bad. I feel so bad. Well, you you feel worse than I do. So you need to put that in check. Um, whereas in comedy, like they laugh and like, I feel that I have some control o over my story then. And like all the stories that I talk about, there might be a little bit of a co comedic exaggeration but i've had people tell me that sex could cure my stuttering and i've had people who have said that true love has cured their friends stuttering so like the all of that needs to be made f f fun of and and i feel very lucky to be able to do that in front of large groups and dive bars because they both get it in a different way and and i have fun shush sharing it. So could you tell me and the audience the story of the young man in his 20s who uh, was seeing a psychologist who told him that he, he was a virgin also. If you could relate this story, the virgin. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so and I'll tell it more in my comedic voice than in my Yes. Regular, I'm talking to Judy voice. Please do. So, okay. 
<laughs> so one of my friends, um, he was a virgin and he was about, you know, 23 and it's not that, you know, he was saving himself. It just hadn't happened yet. It was fine. He was fine. And he tells his uh, psychologist that, um, or his uh, psychologist tells him once he starts having sex that he's not going to stutter anymore, which is like, by the way, this is a side note that I don't put in my act, but I know this psychologist saw one flew over the cuckoo's nest uh. and the guy in that was fluent for like a second after he had sex. Um, and like basing, basing um, a perspective on stuttering on a movie is like a marine biologist quoting Jaws or like a paleontologist referencing J Jurassic Park. Like it's not what you want to do. Right. Anyway, going back to my friend, I was like, you know that that's some BS, right? Like that, that it's not sex. Your stutter is your stutter. It's your brain. That's it. He's like, yeah, yeah. But the guy helps me on some other stuff. Anyway, my friend, he started to date this woman. And after a couple weeks, he, I, I kind of felt something was going to happen. And one Sunday mo morning, I, I got a text and the text read, I, 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 I still stutter. Because he did it. He got yeah. some... And so I quickly texted back, keep on tr trying. And I'm happy to report he still stutters. <laughs> and he's still having good sex. Yes. As far as you know. <laughs> as far as I know. <laughs> I think those are really um, important stories in so many ways. Um, I, I knew a guy at one point. His name was Sid Rosenblum. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He was... He was a comedian, a wheelchair user. I don't think he's doing it anymore, but he was so hilarious. And he did a fundraiser for an organization that I was involved with a number of years ago. And what was really uh, great about the performance, it was about a 50% disabled people, 50% uh, appeared to have no disabilities. And the jokes that he told, everybody laughed. And I absolutely knew that many of us with disabilities were laughing for a completely different reason. And I loved that experience, which I think is the only time I've actually been in a room where there was a disabled comedian who was really the main act. And to see the learning and the laughter, and I wished we would have had time, of course we didn't, to really break into groups and have a discussion about the jokes and why we laughed because i thought that in and of itself uh would be very interesting have you ever been involved in talking with people after you've done a performance um about uh, what they experience when listening to you yeah and and that is so interesting um and and it comes in various ways because i do stand up i do professional speaking i oftentimes do kind of like assemblies for kids although that's not as as much um 
sometimes like I did a show in Austin. It was just like an open mic. I was so tired and I went up early um, in the show and I waited around in, until the end. Guy comes up to me, he's 22 years old or so. I'm the first person who we ever met who's stuttered. And, and like, it's just like your family. And it's just like a closeness and an immediacy. And it's so great. So there's been that kind of stuff. I've gotten e emails from p parents who say, my kids saw you at an assembly. And since then they've seen this change um, and that they are talking more, they're expressing more. And like that was so, so special when I received that. And also like, and I talk about it in the book um, that we did an all stuttering show at, at a conference and it was just this bar um, in, in, in Texas, um, like a honky tonk kind of thing. And we did the show and a regular was there um, who I'm friends with now, but he kind of made fun of one of my friends and one of my friends educated him. And by the end of the evening, he was like, I want to kiss one of you stutterers because I think it'd go on forever. And I was like, this is, this is quite a turnaround. This is. <laughs> what are your plans for your future? I don't mean for the next 20 years, but like over the next year or so, what, what are some of your aspirations? Um, I'm trying to finish this book with my friend OJ Patterson on the history of stand-up in San Francisco. I feel it's really important to kind of um, explore that history um, because comics are really bad at acknowledging their <laughs> histories and also I put like little things about stuttering and, and uh, disability in there like Whoopi Goldberg used to do a disabled character in her act and this was in the 70s when like that was more okay it wasn't cripping it up the way that it is now she was actually bringing that into the fold and she was in Berkeley at the time and she based it off a disabled friend and like I'm dying to know who that disabled friend yeah. is but that's in my book um so doing that and just get you know I think after the pandemic it's hard to know where comedy is where it's going I just want to get good at my art and I want to do more colleges and, and and shows like that, that I get to go in and see people. So I hope to start to travel again soon. Well, I really want to thank you for your amazing work and what there's so many things that I admire about you. One of them right now in thinking about our discussion is how you're reaching out to other comedians. And I think comedy is great. And um, especially now, here I always go weepy. <laughs> but I think it's really, um, to be able to have disabled artists, um, stutterers, whatever one's disability may be, I think is so important because, you know, being able to get up and perform is very scary. And, you know, like you and me, we're not, terrified or we overcome our terror when we're getting up and speaking to an audience. But a lot of people with or without disabilities are terrified. So, you know, I just think there's a 
a bravery in a very positive way of really being able to get up on a stage and do comedy, because that's so scary. I, for me, I think about it, getting up there and telling a joke that you think is funny that goes flat, that has to be like completely demoralizing. And then you have to go and say something else again. So please, everybody, look at Nina G's great work. You can see it online. You must get this book. It is a great book. Um, and we will give you information on how to get it. And obviously continue to listen to her, not only her comedy, but her work in history of comedians and just her general contribution to the movement. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. It is a great, 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 great honor to be on this. And, um, you know, and because of you, I got to go to college. So thank you. <laughs> You've been tuning in to The Human Perspective with Judy Human. This week, our guest was Nina G. Be sure to follow Nina G at Nina G Comedian on Twitter and visit her website to keep up with upcoming performances. Be sure to read her book, Stutterer Interrupted, The Comedian Who Almost Didn't Happen. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Huaren. And the outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to The Human Perspective and follow Judy on Twitter at Judith Human and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective.